Hello Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the second episode of Celebration of Cinema or Celebrate Our Cinemas, a brand new limited edition series of podcasts brought to you by Empire in association with those fine folks at Meerkat Movies from Compare the Market. The goal of this show is very simple. This pandemic has reminded us all of the important things in life and for most movie fans, the impact that it's had on cinemas and the act of cinema going, which so many of us had taken for granted, has been devastating. Earlier this year, Empire launched an entire issue dedicated to celebrating cinema going and that is something we have continued since. Hence, this podcast in which I will talk to a figure from the world of film every week For the next, well, now this is the second episode, so the next one, two, three, four, four four weeks, five weeks including this one, about their most memorable movie-going experiences. In the first episode, I spoke to Olga Kurylenko, star of Black Widow and Quantum of Solace, and now we're keeping the Bond theme going. Well, not the actual Bond theme, we can't afford that. By talking to one of the finest composers in the business, the wonderful David Arnold. The British composer has written scores for a whole bunch of Bond films over the years, including Casino Royale and the aforementioned Quantum of Solace. He co-wrote my favourite Bond theme song, Chris Cornell's cracking You Know My Name, along the way. And he's also composed the soundtracks for the likes of Independence Day, Hot Fuzz, Zoolander, while his work on the small screen includes Sherlock, Dracula, and Good Omens. The man knows his way around a score, that is for sure. And as anyone who caught the special interview I did with him and fellow composer Michael Cicchino a few years ago will know that he's an extremely funny man with a sense of humour so dry it has been officially classified as a desert. When we spoke, he was preparing for the first live performance of A Circle of Sound, a ten-movement work that he had written specifically to mark the reopening of the Royal Albert Hall. So naturally we talk about that and about the movies that moved him as a child and about his work on James Bond and much, much more. Do please enjoy. We're delighted to be joined in this very, very special celebration of cinema podcast by one of the best composers in the business, Mr. David Arnold. How are you, sir? Oh, and he seems... It's not so long ago that we were talking about other things, but it's lovely to be back. Feels like we've almost rolled straight from one interview into another, but uh, that's not pulled back the curtain too much. No, you don't want like like what they said, like they're like like sausages. You, if you like them, you don't want to find out how they're made. <laughs> that's a very good point. I believe there's some ready salted crisps in there and some mayonnaise. <laughs> Excellent. I think that's how they make sausages. You know what to do with them now. <laughs> and for anyone who hasn't heard the other thing, it's nothing to do with that. It actually yeah. is to do with eating them. <laughs> but that's a callback to a completely different interview. But uh, but anyway, let's uh, let's talk about cinemas and cinema going, David. I mean, obviously, this you you're at the moment you're working on uh, Glorious Return to the Royal Albert Hall, and you're going to be walking mm. into the Royal Albert Hall on Monday night um, past uh, to play a Circle of Sound. Uh, but what about what about the movies? Have you been back to cinema? Have you missed it during the pandemic? If I was, uh, there's a question that I've been asked a few times, like what's your sort of perfect day? And to a certain extent, my perfect day was the sort of thing that I used to do before I got any work. I mean, you know, I mean, I was always practicing and playing and writing, but you know, I didn't, no one paid me. So I would have days where there was nothing. And uh, in those days I would, I would go to the cinema and start at the earliest screening and try and get as many films in as I could 
in a day, you know, sometimes three or sometimes four. I love them, you know, and I still do love the cinema. Um, I haven't been back. Um, there hasn't been that much in at the moment, you know, but I mean, I've been, uh, I did invest in a projector. So I've got a, you know, a pretty good system at home now. And I've been watching films as cinematically as possible. Um, but you do, yeah, of course you miss it. I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's nothing quite like the experience of, of being in a film theater cinema with hundreds of other people reacting to the same thing at the same time um it's such a thrill you know and you find that funny films are funnier and scarier films are scarier and exciting films are more exciting when you're in a group of people all having the same ride that you are um and that's something that you will be unable to replicate in a home cinema so um um yeah i can't wait to get back yeah, it's it's difficult. You you can you can have the popcorn, you can have the the best sound system in the world, you can have a pretty big TV, but you can't replicate that tall bloke who just pops in and sits down in front of you just as the uh, the film begins. Well, you could, but it would involve you going out and just getting people to sit in your house while <laughs> you watch a film. Some of them in front of you, and some of them being annoying. You know, so it's not that you couldn't when we choose not to. But um, but yeah, so that wouldn't be the same either. No, it wouldn't be. Um, so so what was? You've only got you've only got one toilet for a start. And, <laughs> Some of us have got an ensuite, David. I don't want to be flash. But... Oh well, you don't, you don't want you don't want strangers going through your bedroom unless you do. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not going to say no if they want to. If they want to have a poke around, like come dine with me. Well, that's none of my business. And that's your language, not mine. <laughs> So what was the film that, that sparked the flame? Was there a film that sparked the flame for you? Uh, well, there were three in very close proximity to each other. And it was over, I think, one one kind of end of summer into Christmas. Um, so it's kind of like September, October, November, December. Uh, the first one, I was in Dublin and I saw Oliver. Uh, and then a couple of months later uh, in Luton, at the Luton Odeon. I saw you only live twice actually at a children's birthday party um, wow. at the Luton, at the Luton British Legion and then uh, the jungle book. Um, so all within the same sort of little period of a few months and all of those films are so completely different to each other. And yet they're all extraordinarily kind of iconic, powerful imagery, but the music was, is sensational in all of them. And mm-hmm. there's a mixture of song and score and you know the, the opening of the Jungle Book, one of my favourite pieces of music. It's 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 so amazing. The opening of You Only Live Twice. You have the gun barrel. You have the song You Only Live Twice. You have John Barry's capsule in space cue, which is unbelievable. And then you get Sean Connery post coitally machine gun to death. And uh, and you see Japan. You know, at a time where you couldn't see Japan. You know, yeah. Japan, you know, I'm from Luton and my bedroom overlooked the Electrolux car park. Uh, and so I saw cars and people in cars going to work and then coming back from work every day, uh, twice a day. Uh, and all of a sudden I was looking at volcanoes and, you know, different sea and different sky colours and different people. And uh, and it's hard to, you know, I mean, bonds were that sort of global they sort of shone the light on parts of the world that you never had a chance to see. These 
documentaries that you can pull up easy as anything now, you know, or just go online and find a camera that's stuck on the Golden Gate Bridge Mm. and see what it's like. You know, it's like you literally didn't see those things. Uh, and so watching the exoticism and the, you know, the world through, through movies was a, was a big thing. But for me, it was like the fantastical element of it. And all of those films are obviously fictional, fantastical, but beguiling and enchanting and, 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 and funny and exciting and moving. And, you know, it was a mixture of songs and score, like I said, and that, and that was it. I think those three things made me want to be a part of the machine that made that noise. I wanted to be a part of the thing that made me feel like that because I wanted to understand how that happened. Yeah, because it's the music in those movies that lifts you up, I would say, more than any other aspect, arguably. Well, we we are biased, uh, but I would agree. (laughs) But were you biased back then? Was it something that was on your mind even back then? were Were you musical? Were you looking to pursue something in music? Well, there was a lot of music in the house, but I mean, I'm talking about seven, eight, nine years old, you know, like mm. really, you know, not to the point where I was thinking this is what I want to do. But I mean, my mum did save an old exercise book, I think, when I was six, when I said, when I grow up, I wanted to be an actor or a musician. And to a certain extent, I suppose you are when you do this. Um, you have to be a little bit of both uh, and psychologist. So I knew I kind of, I mean, I love music and there was always music on in the house, you know, constantly. So I was exposed to it a lot, lots of old Lots of old songs, you know, the sort of records that we had were, you know, the couple of Beatles ones, some Tom Jones and Jack Jones and Victor Moans and Frank Sinatra. My dad had the classics and they had lots of musicals, soundtracks of musicals like Oklahoma and Cabaret and West Side Story and South Pacific. Um, and so you're exposed to sophisticated songwriting, you know, very early on. Uh, and and then when you tie this, you know, these these things have a kind of an emotional grip on you. Uh, and music has this, it does this thing where um, it illuminates and um, lights up every aspect of your brain when you listen to it. It's the only thing that does it. Um, and I only know that because I had it done to me on an MRI machine when we were experimenting with a, 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 a specialist in, in brain activity and music and comedy as to why the brain reacts the way it does. And it's uh, Professor Sophie Scott, who's an amazing uh, uh, practitioner uh, in, in, in terms of making you understand, you know, science. Uh, and we were looking at how that happens and how composition happens. Mm. Because you think, like, people say, well, how do you compose? And the honest answer is, I don't know. But what was really fascinating about it is that one of the experiments that we did in the MRI machine was... Uh, I was told to compose music when a certain word showed up on a screen. Uh, and if the word was green, don't compose music in your head. If the word was red, compose wow. music in your head. Uh, and in the meantime, they'd be playing music all the time that I liked. And when that happens, your whole brain is alive. Uh, and then they, they stop that, and then they put the red one up, the composition. Then your brain is alive everywhere apart from memory. Memory was the only part of your brain that wasn't engaged in a compositional process, which I thought was fascinating. When you're trying to create something new that hopefully hasn't been done before, certainly in your experience hasn't been yeah. done before, that your, 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 your recall, your memory has nothing to do with that process. Um, and I'm not quite sure how we got to this bit, <laughs> but we're thinking about like how, why does music do that? You know, yeah. It was definitely, when I saw those films, the music had a profound effect but you can't escape 
that the fact that you are in a way in a dark room and this is why i like going to the cinema with a bunch of like-minded people who in a way when you walk in you're conditioned to pay attention to what's in front of you most of us are uh, and when you sit down and watch a film and it, and the and the lights go down you you stay quiet and you listen and you look and you are in a mode where you are going to be accepting whatever it is that is coming towards you and you hope that it's going to be wonderful it's not always but when it does it lands very very hard uh, and i think when you're there expecting something magical and the first three films that you see are totally magical mm-hmm. then you become completely entranced in the idea of film and what it can do alongside all the other things and i don't know if that's why i ended up doing film because obviously i'm the sort of musical side of that but in a way you know the music part of it is how i feel you know and the music that i hear in a great film is how i feel that's the great skill of it you know when you're in the hands of a master uh then somehow they tell you how you feel you know they don't mm. force you to believe it but they kind of illuminate your feelings about something uh and they make whatever's on the screen feel real um and not mm. an artifice um so it's a, it's an amazing set of unknowns but the set is amazing regardless let's talk specifics uh in terms of your cinema going past so you talked about seeing oliver in dublin you mm-hmm. lived twice in Luton, I presume, as well. Jungle Book yeah. was Luton also. Yes, uh, it what was, was yeah. What was a cinema of choice for you? What was your childhood cinema? Uh, the big one was uh, the Odeon. Uh, and that's where I saw Star Wars when it came out, Alien when it came out, Close Encounters when I came out. I mean, I think, I suppose the second most profound moment I had in cinema, as a you know, having been a child and watched these other things, which really got me interested, was was uh, was was the uh, you know the spaceship overturning at the back of uh, the end of Close Encounters, oh, yeah. uh, and it just looked so vast, and I'd never seen anything like it. And the whole, I mean, the the, the place was full, and it's a big cinema that Odeon. You know, it was only one screen at that point, so it was a you know a few quite a few hundred people, maybe eight hundred, nine hundred people. Uh, and it was a time when, you know, if you smoked, you sat on the right-hand side. And if you didn't smoke, you sat on the left-hand side. And the whole place looked at each other when that spaceship inverted and revealed itself to be like 10 times the size. Everyone just looked at each other and, and, and shut up. And I've never seen a sort of cinema almost as quiet when they, ca- when they came out. You couldn't quite believe that you'd seen what you'd seen. And it's weird watching these things on telly now, you know, because um, the scale, the scale is a lot of the part of the experience, you know, in certain in certain films. Obviously, you know, like most sort of domestic dramas, you don't necessarily need it quite so much. Uh, but on those, you know, on, on on a film like that where you want to be, you know, sort of sideswiped with something visually, mm. um, there's 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 so little to distract you when you're in front of an eighty foot screen. Absolutely. Apart from maybe the smoke drifting in from the right hand side of the of the screen. Well, yeah, yeah. It wasn't inappropriate in that in that scene. <laughs> Good point. Did you have a routine? Did you have a favourite seat? Did you have a, a pre-film snack? 
Well, I mean, we didn't really have that much money, to be honest. And um, I used to go to the Saturday morning cinemas, um, which uh, used to do the old Buster Crab Flash Gordons. Oh, yeah. And there'd be a ch the Children's Film Foundation film about, usually about a bunch of cockneys who, you know, lost a wheelbarrow somewhere and <laughs> some farmer ran after him. Uh, that kind of thing. Uh, and then there was a feature, you know, like three you know, a couple of supporting things and then a film. And because we didn't really have any money, so I was able to get to the cinema in and back for 5p uh, on the bus. And I went by myself. And I suppose only eight or nine. It's weird when you think about it. Um, you know, never let your kids go to a cinema on their own <laughs> on a bus when they're eight years old. But then it's like, you know, it was like a half-mile walk to the bus stop and then a uh, half-hour, 40-minute ride into town for 2p. Uh, and then you could get into the cinema uh, and then come back later in the afternoon by yourself, and it was apparently fine. Uh, well, it was. I mean, <laughs> I did it. Um, uh, but my mum used to make me some orange squash in a, in an old medicine bottle when you used to get uh, medicine from the from the doctors in those days. Uh, it was in like a glass, you know, brown ribbed bottle, so you knew it was poisonous. So she used to rinse that out and used to make me some orange squash in that. And sometimes, um, like a sandwich in a in a paper bag. So it was a bit like being at home, but I was able to go to the cinema. So that was the main thing. Yeah, no sweets were definitely out of bounds because you know that was a penny, and and that's half my bus fare. So, uh, <laughs> but now, but now, you know, obviously, you know, then I went complete opposite. When you've got enough money to do things, you know, the way you'd like to. I go in. I've never really been a popcorn person, though. Uh, I'm definitely like a bucket full of nachos with everything on. Oh, that's really? my that's my go to thing. I okay. used to like it when they used to have they used to have these things called the nut hut uh, in the uh, in the in the O2 on Finchley Road, uh, and in sometimes around the West End cinemas as well, um, where it was basically a a shop that just sold nuts. <laughs> I mean, obviously they don't exist anymore, but this was fairly recently. Uh, and you could go in and they do all the, obviously all your nuts, all your favorite nuts, uh, but then they would do the other sort of the yogurt coated ones and, you know, the dried oh, yeah. fruit yeah. and chocolate yeah. coated ones and all that. So get a bag of that and munch your way through one of them. That's how I got to this state, <laughs> sitting in a cinema, <laughs> eating about 10,000 calories worth of nuts. <laughs> watching Close Encounters again. Oh, that sounds like heaven. You just described heaven. Apart from the nuts, is, I'm not a huge nut fan. It but is. Yeah. It is. Pick a mix. Pick a mix. That's my, that's my uh, cinematic drug of choice. Yeah, not a big jelly fan, though. I mean, like, I, I, I like pick a mix, but I like the either the white chocolate ones or the foamy shrimpy ones. Oh, I love the foamy shrimpy ones. I don't like the jelly ones. No. I quite like them foamy bananas. Yeah, they're amazing. And the, shrimp, and the shrimpy ones and the white chocolate mice. I like that. Don't mind powdery, powdery things, but anything yeah. which is like sour, forget it. Jelly snakes, forget it. That's too much effort. It's like <laughs> it takes hours to chew those things. And it's like I like to be able to get through a whole like liter of uh, of white chocolate or you know, in the in the expense of the film. I love the sour stuff. I've, you've just unleashed an intense craving in me. I miss so desperately yeah. the the pink and blue fizzy cola bottles, which are really <laughs> really sour. I could load up on those and just go to town. Yeah, don't like that at all. I like, but I haven't said that. I like jelly babies and I like jelly beans, but they're not the same. Jelly beans mm -hmm. and jelly babies are like two or three chews and you're off. Yeah, uh, a, a sour gummy thing is like as an investment. 
in time that I'm not prepared to make. So, <laughs> what's your favourite cinema now? Do you have? You've been around the world. You've you've uh, had films yes, play all over um, the place. I tend to like the ones where I've had a, an amazing experience. I used to I used to like the uh, Empire in Leicester Square because of the size of the screen and the sound was uh, really really good. I found mm. the View Cinemas over here before they shut up were brilliant projection and brilliant sound as well. And I'm more interested in that than you know necessarily comfy seating. Uh, I mean, you've got the, the, the sort of the sort of higher end, you know, slightly boutique ones like Screen on the Hill and Screen on the Green, those kinds of things, where now you've got a big sofa and a waiter comes around and all that. So, I mean, that's very pleasant. Um, but I think I'd rather be in a regular kind of, you know, multiplex, big screen. I don't like the small ones because then I think I could be at home and this is 27 quid or something in the West End. Um, yeah, I like a big screen. You know, IMAX is obviously brilliant. Uh, but yeah, the old empire. I saw a couple of I think I saw Lawrence of Arabia at the um, uh, Marble Arch Odeon, which I think was the biggest screen in Europe at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because everything felt like an event, and I love events. I think I try and do things that are kind of one-offs and specials and event-like. But you know, basically, if a film is showing and I want to see it, I'll go anywhere. I'm not that fussy. <laughs> so you said that uh, you remember the places where you've had uh, incredible experiences. Have any of those yeah. experiences been whilst watching your own movies? I'm always a little bit too far away from the experience to enjoy it. Um, but from an observational perspective, going to see the world premiere of Godzilla at Madison Square Garden was an event. Wow. Um, and... Independence Day, I think Independence Day, we did it at West, uh, where was it? Westfield, uh, Westwood <laughs> uh, in, in, uh, in, in uh, Los Angeles. I think that was there. Um, Stargate, I think we premiered that at the Chinese theatre, which is obviously like really special and really lovely. But I've tended to try and... I mean, the Bond premieres have been extraordinary, you know, the ones at the Odeon and then Die Another Day. We did that at the at the Albert Hall, actually, and dressed the outside of it like full of like icicles and everything. And it was all sort of bathed in blue light, so it looked like an ice palace. <laughs> I mean, just the stuff, I mean, the, the, you know, the Bond premieres are so brilliant. Uh, and then we did Narnia at the Odeon, uh, Leicester Square. I mean, all of these big things, you can't quite believe that, you know, that you're a part of it. And it's quite easy then to enjoy it as a result, you know, but um, it, and it's difficult when you get older to sort of approach it as more of a fan because, you know, like you said, like, you know, you know, uh, you know how things are done. And so it's slightly less magical. But when you see the fruits of other people's work, like, you know, like the marketing guys might have done a brilliant poster campaign or they dress the place amazing. And, you know, the whole thing is like super exciting. That stuff's really special. You know, it's just really lovely. And you realize, that it's quite rare that it happens, you know, that you can have a moment like that. And over the years, the idea of an event film has kind of been diluted a bit. And certainly when I was growing up, a Bond movie would be an event and it still is. That's what's extraordinary about it. It still is. But it would be once or twice a year you would have a film like that. And now it's like you've got four a week. You've got four films a week all telling you that it's a cinematic event of the year, you Mm -hmm. know, and that's quite a lot. And I don't know how you can tell because, um, you know, the year is not finished. But they, <laughs> they, they tell you regardless. But every now and again, it is true. And every now and again, you have that tremendous experience where you're with uh, an audience and 
something yeah. happens on the screen and it's just an electric atmosphere. Yeah. You know. And I tend to go back again and again and again. It's been a long time since I've done it. Yeah. But I remember seeing Flash Gordon when it came out uh, about five times. Uh, I remember seeing Little Shop of Horrors, um, the Frank Oz one, uh, the musical, yeah. uh, about five or six times in the cinema. I just couldn't get enough of that film. And Pee Wee's Big Adventure, sort of the funniest thing I'd ever seen. And these are all films that I will watch, you know, every year again. You know, I just, I just had that moment with them and fell in love with them. Uh, and I'll always feel happy when I see it because it was just one of those overwhelming moments. Like when you have a great gig, you go and see a great concert and something lands which you've never really experienced before. And all of a sudden you think, I'm never going to forget this and I'm never going to forget how I felt and I'm never going to forget it was them that did it. So even if they make an album full of rubbish afterwards, it's like I'm always going to have that and that's always going to be special. <laughs> and I, I, even though you say you were – you're not detached, but you're, you experience your films in a different way when you're watching them at premieres. I imagine the moment in Casino Royale, for example, when you know Bond says the name's Bond, James Bond, yeah, and, and the score kicks in. Now you remind me of that. That was that was a big grin because no one had seen that before. No one had had the film play to them. Um, with the score where that had happened. So it was my first time you know, that an audience had seen it and that had happened. And um, it, was a, it was an interesting route to that because, you know, I kind of decided early on that that would be the right thing to do. Hmm. And uh, I spoke to Martin uh, about it. You know, he's directing like a bundle of energy, extraordinary person <laughs> and Barbara. Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson. And we sort of agreed that, you know, that as soon as you play that theme out in full, then what are we doing watching him making mistakes afterwards? You know, it's like (laughs) it's impossible. So we thought it'd be a good idea. I still think it's a good idea. Um, But then Sony's slightly nervous of it. They think like, is this, is this asking a Bond audience too much to watch an entire film without the Bond thing? And that's something to consider, you know, when you're spending that amount of money on a movie and expectations are going to be sky high. Is it an intellectual, you know, idea that, sh- that should be um, like loosened a little bit? So I sort of went back and thought, well, maybe, maybe he can earn this thing bit by bit as the film goes on. So when he does something which we know in canon, you know, film canon, you know, the iconography of Bond in cinema. When he, like in a video game, finds the, you know, the golden ring, uh, then we can reward the audience with a bit of the theme, but not all of it, you know, one of the building blocks. So when he wins the DB5, you know, uh, in fact, when he flies in to, uh, to the Bahamas in that sort of turboprop plane, um, is the first time you hear dun, 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 only a bit and goes into you know my name and then when he wins the DB5 um, playing cards um, he gets a bit more of it mm-hmm. when he puts the tuxedo on in the in the bedroom uh, bathroom um, with Vespa he gets a little bit more of it mm. and so you're kind of primed you know there's, there's, there's sort of suggestions of it and hints at it all the way through. And so you're very ready. And of course, you know, the other thing is, is like in the script, he doesn't say those words till the end of the movie, two and a half hours later before he gets to say the name's Bond, James Bond. 
you know, and you wait for that in a Bond movie. You know, you, you're expecting that to happen. It has to happen. And like, and when he says it like that, you've been you've been hanging around. You know, like you're you're like a dog waiting to get out of a car at that point. Uh, and then basically, we got to do is open the door, and everyone goes out, and and here we are in the park. And it was it was a big kind of boom, and it was one of the most satisfying things to write in a lot of ways because I was playing with the ramp into it. You know, they had the little vamp as Mr. White. We didn't hear the bad amp until the shot hits Mr. White's knee, you know, and he mm -hmm. goes down and then he starts crawling. And then I had the kind of boom, dong, ding, dong, 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 you know, and the little tambourine thing, ching, 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 ching. And you go like, here it comes, here it comes, here it comes. <laughs> and you wait and you go, here it comes. Da, 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 da. And then we just kind of pause. He goes, who are you? Uh, and he goes, you know, I bond, change bond. And then I got the trumpets going from low to high going what and then we we're off and running you know and that was it cut to black bang and that was the most electrifying recording of that theme it was one of those magic ones you know where it's like we did it a couple of times more and it was always the first one for some reason it was just one of those ones where everyone had been waiting the i mean i waited till the end of the score to record it as well so the band were as excited about doing it as everyone else was hmm. um and uh so it was electrifying because then you didn't have to worry about it fitting the picture once we cut to black you know it was like let's just go and see where it you know let's just play it how we feel like it uh, it plays so you don't have to worry about clicks and all of that sort of stuff and then and, and just play their asses off it was just unbelievable and it's been used i think in almost every film since i mean i'm interested to see what happens in um in no time to die but but certainly in, in skyfall inspector that arrangement is yeah. in the film uh, yeah. and um I like that it's sort of become Daniel's one and it feels to me like a, it's kind of like a slightly definitive arrangement for me because it has, you know, it's when I think I got the guitar right, when I got the sound of the guitar right, the energy was right, you know, the kind of, to sort of nod towards the traditional arrangement was right. It just felt like this is, you know, as a fan of it, mm. it felt like this is what I want to hear. And that's how I approach all of them. You know, like, what do I want to hear? I'm a fan of this. What would I want to hear at this point? So, I mean, I'm really interested in, 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 in what Hans has done. You know, it's, yeah. um, you know, I think everyone, one of the great highlights for me is, is what do composers do with that theme? So uh, I'm very excited to see what Hans has done with it. Absolutely. And then watching it again, you, you said a, a big grin on your face. and the, uh, the, Well, it was, yeah, it was like I was sitting next to Chris Cornell and we sort of looked at each other uh because the whole place went wild you know like and i kind of say that you know at these premieres you know there's a lot of invited people uh and then there's the you know public uh there as well who are generally there who are big bond fans you know so they're full of enthusiasm and they want it to be great but there was like a proper like football kind of cheer which was like this is great and it was just for that you know and I mean, I know I didn't write the Bond theme, but I had a part in it. And uh, that moment was, uh, yeah, you can't do that trick again now. You know, other people can. Other people can save themes right to the end, you know, but I'm glad we did it first. Now someone's going to say, actually, you didn't do it first. It was someone else did it in another film somewhere else. <laughs> but anyway, as far as I know, that's yeah. my caveat. But listen, I, I do have to let you go. So I want to do a quick speed round quick speed round with you uh 
So you talked earlier on about Pee-wee's Big Adventure being a movie that made you laugh most. Is that the case? Well, Airplane, Airplane was the film that actually made me laugh most. The first time I saw Airplane in a cinema, I, I mean, I know people say this, I actually did fall off the chair. I was, I was on my knees, on, I slid off the, uh, the, the seat. Um, I was at the Odeon, uh, was it Leicester Square? I was in the West End anyway. I was wetting myself. I've never laughed so hard in my life before or since at a film. Um, so I, I have to say that Airplane was the one that, that made me laugh the most. That's a good choice. That's a good choice. Uh, without going too much into details, obviously, uh, do you remember oh, this the, is a speed round? This is speed round, but no, but also you'll yeah. you'll, you'll see why once you, once I get to the question. Uh, without going into speed, details, speed isn't my wheelhouse. Really, I'm a kind of <laughs> s- slow and steady, and let's look at everything that surrounds it. Yeah, okay, I'll try. I'll try. I'm just saying, without going into too much details, and you'll you'll understand why in a second. Okay, yeah, uh, yeah. I'll respect your format. Yeah, absolutely. Just you know, wait, wait for me to finish the question, David, for the love of God. Uh, what was the first movie you took uh, someone on a date to the cinema to? Uh, oh, uh, Alien. Holy shit. First one. Yeah, the first one. It's a good one, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a good one because everyone in that um, queue, that was at the Odeon in Luton, uh, everyone in that queue was talking about because everyone had heard by then about the chest buster. Everyone was talking about that and everyone was terrified of that. And as that scene started, it's like everyone in the cinema was covering up their eyes with their arms. I mean, it was because they knew it was coming, you know, and it was so brilliant. Uh, yeah, that was a, oh God, that was so amazing in cinema. That film. Yeah, Alien. Alien. Excellent. Uh, and that leads into the next question. The scariest film you've ever seen in a cinema? Uh, oh, well, I'll tell you what the scariest experience I've ever had. It wasn't in a cinema. I was in a pub in Dublin and someone decided to show The Omen. Uh, and uh, I've never seen a place clear out so fast. You know, once the head started spinning around, that was it. Everyone was off down the church, I think. It was unbelievable. Uh, that was the, that was the, that felt like the scariest. Yeah, that was definitely the scariest, but it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't in a cinema, but it was a film. So when, when was this? And presumably The Exorcist, not The, uh, the Omen? Uh, oh yeah, sorry. No, The Exorcist. Yeah, yeah. The Exorcist. Uh, yeah, sorry. Whoa, that was bad. Yeah, The Exorcist. Mm. When was that? When did that come out? 75, 70, 72, 72, I think. Was it seventy two? Okay. Yeah. Well, in that case, it might have been yeah two or three years after that because they had it on a uh, some kind of tape thing. I think seventy three, seventy four. Uh, but anyway, it was on. It was in. It was in a pub in Ireland, and uh, yeah, quite good though. If you're in a pub that empties out quite quickly, it's <laughs> terrifying film as well. <laughs> It's an interesting campus. Yeah. yeah. What's the film that, that's made you cry the hardest? BT. Every time I see it, uh, when when he does the first making the bike fly, when when he dies, when the flower comes back, you know, when he walks past, when he drags him out and the flower starts flowing again. Oh my god, thinking about it now. Now, uh, not so much the saying goodbye thing. I don't care about that, uh, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I don't care about that. Um, <laughs> I don't care. Uh, but the bit where you think he's dead, I don't even mind him being dead, but it was when he came back. It was like the thing, like, no, he actually is dead. It was brilliant. It was a brilliant move. It's like he's killed the title character. You know, that's the only thing that we sort of, you know, we really care about. Like, it's E.T., don't kill E.T., but now he's dead. He's in that 
box and he's dead. And then the light comes up and it's like, no one can even see it. And you go, oh my God. And then the music turns and then, oh, yeah. It's so good. It is so, it's so not, good. Not sad films necessarily, yeah. although I, I am capable of crying at sad films. Anything to do with uh, army children, I, 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 I kind of give a pass to because it's, I think it's a, you know, a lot of the time it's a sort of cheap way of getting an emotional response about someone putting children in danger. So I tend not to bother with those ones. But, you know, things that are genuinely, I suppose, probably sort of family-based, you know, mm. like sometimes long-lost families, you know, if they make a movie out of that, just a load of people finding their brothers. The things that make me cry have changed over the years as I, as I get older and more empathetic and uh, more, yeah. more experienced in life. Certainly things that would have yeah. made me cry 10 years ago now have me blubbing like yeah. a baby. Yeah, I think that works across all your emotions, really, isn't it? It's like you're scared of different things. You're braver about different situations mm. uh, and you cry about different things. Different things are important. Um, I suppose it's when your world kind of opens up a bit, you know, mm. and it's not just you as a child or a teenager where your world is you and what you see. Um, and then when you get a bit older, you realize that actually your world is everywhere and everyone and what other people do have an effect and what you has an effect. So, you know, you tend to feel those uh, ripples of change and things happening to mm. you and you can't help but consider them. Uh, as part of your own experience and part of your own life. And I think if you're an empathetic person, then you can't help by being upset by some of the awful things that happen in the world. That's not very fun. That's not very funny, is it? It's, so it's a great note which to end. <laughs> <laughs> I can say something stupid to take the edge off it, if you like. I should have planned these questions. I, I should have finished with the funny film and started with the, the sad film. But that's well, it's my okay, bad. It's a, it's a, it's, well, it's good. It's about podcasts, so A, you don't have to worry about finishing in time for the news uh, <laughs> or the weather or, yeah. Don't you sort of hanker after the time when, like, the sort of headlines used to be, like, Tom Cruise loses a button at a bus stop, and that used to be the news, you know? Yeah. Wasn't that great? It, yeah, before the, all the, the dark times started and people started yeah. dying. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I did prefer I, it. That was I, funny. I want, I want that news back. I mean, I know he was in the news the other day because he was at Goodwood and at, Wem at Wembley and at Wimbledon, I think, on the same day. Only Tom I Cruise mean, can do that. Know. Yeah, but I mean, like, you can't do you actually watch anything. I mean, maybe he just goes a bit like Phil Collins at Live Aid, you know. <laughs> yeah, he was too busy. He was clambering on the roof of uh, of Centre Court just for uh, just to keep himself occupied. That's that's what he yeah, does. Yeah, but you know, yeah. he went he, he went to good he went to Goodwood and he like he hang on to the back of a car while it went round. Then he went to went to Wimbledon and jumped off the roof. And they went to Wembley and then ran across the arch and then went home. Yes, he just got in without a ticket at Wembley. That was that was excitement enough. Did you get all that? <laughs> just just to put some bongos on it. It would sound exciting. It'll be fine. <laughs> all right, that's a much better note than much to end. Uh, Thanks, David Arnold. Good luck with everything at the Royal Albert Hall. And whenever Thank you, you are much. finished that, uh, do you have an idea what you're going to see next? What's the first film that's going to entice you back to the cinema? Uh, well, what, what's coming out? I mean, I don't know what's coming out. I really haven't looked. Uh, I mean, I'd, I'd like to see Black Widow in the cinema just because it's a, you know, I like those films yeah. uh, as, mu as much as other ones. Um, uh, but I don't know. I don't really know what's, what, what is coming out. Oh, don't ask me. I, saw, I think my, I think my, <laughs> you only work for Empire. Yeah. Um, the, <laughs> the, um, 
Well, yeah. Well, I, you know, I've sort of moved towards or away, slightly away from films that are sort of really dark uh, and moving more towards films that I hope are about something. Uh, and that's probably just an age thing. Having said that, I'm still a sucker for a blockbuster, you know, for a, for a value for money, eye full of, you know, stunts and stuff, you know, like I'm, I, I love that kind of thing. And, you know, I do love them. I love the Marvel movies because I think, you know, I grew up reading Marvel comics. So mm-hmm. to see them come to life uh, was a great, you know, treat and a thrill for me. And I still like them. And I'd like to, do, you know, I've never done one. And I don't know why I haven't. I'm available for Marvel films. <laughs> so am I. So let's put this out into the universe. <laughs> and see if Kevin I mean, Feige gets I, in touch. I, I, could, I could be the Hulk. You could be. You know, I, I think you should stick to music, David, and I'll. I'll just. I'll just do whatever the hell it is I do. I've got the shorts. That's a start. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. We'll get in touch with Kevin right. Feige. Make this happen, David Arnold. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Cheers. Okay, so that was David Arnold. Told you he was a blast, and that is it for episode two of Celebration of Cinema in association with Meerkat Movies from Compare the Market. Hope you enjoyed it. A Circle of Sound is currently not available for you to hear. It was a bespoke one-off creation for the Royal Albert Hall, but if you want to find out more about it and support the Royal Albert Hall, then go to royalalberthall.com. And of course, David's incredible work as composer is readily available wherever you get your music. Join us next week for more celebration of cinema-related fun. It's going to be another belter as I talk to the very funny Asim Chowdhury, star of People Just Do Nothing Big in Japan, the big screen adaptation of the successful BBC sitcom. Until then, I'm off to binge on those foamy pink shrimps. Mmm, heaven. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. Bye.